You are listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at edcorner.stanford.edu. Uh, it's a real pleasure to introduce to you Judy Estrin. Uh, Judy is currently the CEO and founder of JLabs, formerly known as Packet Design. Um, before that, she was the CTO at Cisco from 1998 to 2000. Before she was at Cisco, she was actually a three-time successful entrepreneur and founder of various companies in the technology world. She also um, recently published a book called Closing the Innovation Gap, which I think will be a source of a lot of the conversation today. Um, I have a soft spot in my heart for Judy because she sits on the board of the Walt Disney Company, which is where I worked after I graduated from grad school. Um, it's a tough place to be, but I think it's probably better being a board member than being an analyst in strategic planning. So uh, I have some questions for you uh, about that experience. Uh, Judy studied math and CS at UCLA. We won't hold that against her because she went on to earn her MS in EE here at Stanford, and she's a great friend of Stanford. Please help me welcome Judy Estrin. Thank you. And it's, uh, I think we were um, talking before, last time I spoke here was either 2002, 2002 or 2003, I can't remember, but it's uh, wonderful to be back. And um, actually, for the first time, uh, I'm actually not here talking about entrepreneurial lessons or uh, my career so much, but I'm going to talk about innovation. And um, Many people think innovation and entrepreneurialism are the same thing. Um, some people think they're completely different. Um, they actually aren't the same, but they're very linked. And um, you can have entrepreneurialism without innovation, but uh, you can't really have Silicon Valley type entrepreneurialism without innovation, um, as we know it uh, in, in the Valley. And um, the book I just wrote, Closing the Innovation Gap, came um, from a concern that I have had uh, that's been growing over the last several years, that the valley, uh, it started out in the valley, but then looking at the country, that we're actually more concerned with entrepreneurialism than we are with the foundations of innovation that need to go along with that entrepreneurialism. And that, in addition, uh, the environment that I was able to build my career in, um, and which was uh, incredibly supportive of an entrepreneur, doesn't exist today in quite the same way. And those were the two factors that really led me to think more about innovation and uh, write the book. And so what I thought I would do today is uh, share with you the, some of the key concepts behind the book, but I'll put it in the perspective of uh, entrepreneurs as opposed to many times when I'm talking uh, about innovation, it's to larger companies or um, uh, scientists who are not focused on the, uh, the subject of entrepreneurialism. Um, let me start out by seeing if the clicker can work. Okay. Um, so this may seem obvious uh, to anybody studying at Stanford or anybody in Silicon Valley, um, but in fact, people use the term innovation so often, and now use the term change, in fact, so often, that um, many people actually tune out to it. 
it becomes a soundbite. It becomes something that we uh, take for granted that innovation just is going to happen, and um, especially here in Silicon Valley, that it will continue to happen. But um, I want to first make the point that we shouldn't take it for granted because innovation really, really matters. It matters now actually more than ever in uh, certainly my lifetime and uh, certainly in the average lifetime of the people sitting in this room in that it is innovation that drives the economy. Um, every economic cycle that we've had in this country has been driven by something like the Internet or the cell phone or the discovery of DNA. Um, but it also influences the quality of our life, whether it is uh, from health care to being entertained. It's innovation that drives uh, that quality. But more it, as important as e either of those two things is that, as we all know, we're faced with some major, major challenges today as a country uh, and as a planet. And what, be it energy dependence or independence and climate change, be it health care, be it our standing in the world, we have no hope of addressing any of these issues unless innovation is, is thriving in this country. And so why do I go through this whole thing? You're sitting there saying, okay, yes, innovation matters. Um, it doesn't just happen. And the fact of the matter is that I believe that over the last couple of decades, in fact, um, the support for innovation in this country has actually been in a... a I was going to say slow decline, but a slow decline that became much more rapid over the last eight years. And I'll talk a little bit more about the national issues at, at uh, the end of my talk. And the reason is that we've become incredibly short-term focused. We've become very short-term focused and actually more risk-averse as we become more short-term focused in the business community, in Silicon Valley, in the venture entrepreneurial uh, cycle, as well as our culture, and uh, whether it is from the leaders in Washington to people who live their daily lives. Um, we tend to look at tomorrow, we tend to look at next week, but there's just not enough investment going on in the future. And so from the business community to the research community, um, again, what drove my writing of this book is that I think we have what I call an innovation deficit. We're reaping the benefits of seeds that were planted 10, 20, 30 years ago, but we're not planting enough seeds for the future. Now, very often I get people uh, come to me after this and say, come on, Judy, there's lots of innovation going on. Look at all the Web 2.0 stuff. Look at all the new medical procedures. Look at what is going on uh, with solar. Um, but the fact of the matter is that too much of the innovation that is going on is incremental. It may be significant, it may be important, but it is incremental, and it's based on prior work. One of the uh, favorite quotes that um, when I was interviewing people, interviewed over 100 people, and one of them was Mark Andreessen, who most of you know is the uh, person who developed the first browser, and I was talking to him about how quickly he was able to bring the product to market. And he looked at me and he said, Judy, the, my browser was just the icing on a cake that had been baking for 30 years. And it was because of packet switching back in the 60s, the work um, that I was involved in with Vint Cerf on the internet in the uh, 70s, and on and on and on, innovations building on top of innovation, that we were able to have something like the browser that was the icing that, that tipped uh, was that tipping point in terms of making it available to everybody. But without the prior work, without those prior seeds, 
the browser wouldn't have been able to exist. And today we are not planting the seeds the way we were once. So let me, I'm going to uh, break this talk into um, really three different parts. The first is I want to talk a little bit about some of the fundamentals behind innovation. What does it take for innovation really to thrive? And this is true in an organization. It's true in an academic institution, in a research environment. It's true um, in your daily life. Because in the end, innovation is about the capacity to change. It's about the, the ability to change yourself, to change, come out with new products, uh, to change your, your organization. Um, then I'm going to talk a little bit about how it applies to the business world specifically. And then I'm going to end by talking about um, the infrastructure and support for innovation uh, in the country. So let me just talk a little bit about the fundamentals. First of all, when you say innovation, it means a lot of different things to different people. And when you are talking about how to encourage innovation or inspire innovation, you have to know what type of innovation you're talking about. Because there is incremental innovation, which is change which makes something better or uh, something, uh, an, a new product like, again, Web 2.0 as opposed to Web 1.0. That's incremental innovation. Significant, but incremental. There is um, breakthrough innovation. The, the original PC, the discovery of DNA, are examples of breakthrough innovation. <clears throat> and then I actually coined a, a third term, which is I call orthogonal innovation. Because there are times when you have very disruptive products and services that actually don't come through break from breakthroughs in technology, but they're not quite incremental. And my best example of this is iTunes and the iPod. Um, the iPod was not about brand new technology. It was really taking something and looking at the problem differently because it wasn't about an MP3 player. It was about delivering a different type of music experience. And that's a, a type of innovation that comes from using existing tools, services, products, but applying them in, in different ways. A second important thing to understand about innovation, and one of the reasons why innovation is so hard to keep go, uh, going in many environments is that it's messy. It's iterative. You start with um, uh, identifying a need, framing a question. You need to come up with an idea, try it, test it, learn whether or not that works, go back sometimes to uh, finding a new need or a new question or trying something new. And you never know when you start. You have to be willing to invest without knowing what the outcome is going to be or whether the outcome is even going to work, or how long it's going to take to get to an outcome. And the fact of the matter is many people don't like messy processes. People think, like to know when something's going to happen. How much is it going to cost? What is the output going to be? And um, to have real disruptive innovation, you need to be able to have an organization or as a person be able to deal with that messiness. Um, the other key thing is that talent really, really matters. And when it comes to innovation, talent is not just about skill and aptitude, but it's the combination of skill, aptitude, passion, and drive. And I'll come back in a little bit and talk about, when I talk about the core values, but this notion of passion and drive and willingness to have, or ability to have the tenacity to keep going is a critical, critical part of innovation. 
And the other thing is that innovation is no longer about a person inventing in a garage. Um, the problems have become much more complicated than they uh, were. Um, I won't say all the easy problems have been solved, but a lot of the easy problems have been solved. And those exciting problems that face us today are more complex and involve teams. And um, wonderful things happen from small teams of people who are inspired and given grand challenges. But one thing that's very important about innovative teams is an element of diversity. And here I'm not talking about uh, gender, I'm not talking about race, I'm not talking about ethnic diversity, I'm talking about cognitive diversity. And so what you really want in your teams to maximize innovation is people who come at a problem from different perspectives. And that may come from different life experiences, from different disciplines of study. But that cognitive diversity in a team is something that is really, really important in terms of maximizing uh, innovation. When I um, talk to a lot of people about innovation, the first thing that comes to their mind is that innovation is a new product or a new service. And some people even define innovation to mean that unless an idea can be brought to market, it's not an innovation. That innovation is only defined by something that successfully gets to market. And I actually do not believe that because as you'll see in a little bit, I believe that failure and a willingness to fail and the ability to learn from failure is an absolutely critical part of innovation. So I, when I started thinking more broadly about innovation, I wanted to come up with a way to describe innovation in broader terms and the different aspects of innovation. And what came to mind was to draw an analogy with uh, an ecosystem. Now, anybody in a business uh, world who, are, who has either worked in business or taken a class in business, forget about the business definition of an ecosystem because that is about partnerships. I'm talking about the biological definition of an ecosystem. So go back to your science classes. Um, and the biological definition of, or the definition of a biological ecosystem is communities of living organisms that interact dynamically with their environment. And one very, very key thing about this is that for an ecosystem to sustain life, it must be in balance. And this term balance is very important, um, and I'll come back to it a couple times when we talk about innovation. So what do I mean when I talk about an innovation ecosystem? What are the communities of the innovation ecosystem? There are three. There is the research community, which is all about furthering understanding, discovering new ideas, and training minds, training talent to go out into the rest of the ecosystem. And whether or not that talent stays in the research community and does research or goes into the ecosystem to work on products or the application of science and technology, that training in a research environment is really important in terms of how one learns how, how to think. The second community is the development community. That's about development of uh, products and services that use science and technology that might be innovative in terms of new technology, but might be innovative in terms of implementation. So if you look at a company like Intel, um, they have been, a lot of their success has come from their innovation in process in their manufacturing process and how they have continually stayed ahead. So that's an example of innovation in the development uh, community, which is not uh, just from advanced technology. 
And then last, one we often forget about, is the application community. And that is where science or technology is applied to solve problems in new ways. And the healthcare industry, for instance, is in the application community. Companies that use IT to solve um, uh, their business problems are in the application community. So let me give you two quick examples just to put this uh, in perspective. One is an organizational example. Think about Google. So Google started out in the research community with an interesting algorithm to do search. Then they uh, started out their life in business in the development community and innovated in terms of coming out with a new search engine. But Google's real success has come from their innovation in the application community both in terms of their advertising model of tying advertising to search, but every bit as much of their ability to build an IT infrastructure that could scale and allow them to profitably deal with their growth. So they're an interesting example of how you need all three of these communities interacting together in order to produce um, successful innovation. And I'm sure along the way there were a lot of uh, things that didn't work that Google learned from. Now let's look at a problem like uh, the combination of achieving energy independence while reversing climate change. So if you look at, um, which is clearly one of the major problems we have uh, as a country, as a planet. So we need to innovate in the application community. We need to figure out how to change our behaviors as individuals, as organizations, to use energy more efficient to uh, lower our carbon footprint. On the other hand, we need innovation in the development community because we need products that are more energy efficient. We need uh, solar panels that are more uh, cost effective. But we also need to invest in research so that over the long term, we have alternative energies that are clean, affordable, and scalable. And we need to really understand the environmental issues uh, more and more so that we know what behaviors we need to be modifying. So a problem like that does not get solved by innovation just in the development community. It can't get just get solved by venture capitalists and entrepreneurs. It can't just get solved by a big company who's in the application community. And it can't just get solved by research funding. But it takes a balance across all of them to um, come up with the solutions that we need. So I mentioned that in a biological ecosystem, the organisms interact dynamically with their environment. That environment in a natural ecosystem is, is uh, rain or sunshine or wind. Well, what is it in innovation? There are five factors that have the biggest impact on innovation, and they are uh, leadership, funding, policy, education, and culture. And the ones that are the most important are leadership, because if you have the right leadership, you'll end up with the right funding, policy, and education, and culture, because in the end, Innovative leaders are the ones that know how to inspire individuals because innovation in the end is done by people and teams. And so it is really the culture or the environment that produces those people and the leadership that can inspire and challenge them that make the biggest difference. Now, these factors apply to organizations, again, or at a national or global level. In a company, leadership obviously is the leadership of the company. Funding is how do you allocate your budget? How do you fund projects? 
Policy is what procedures do you have in the company that either make innovation thrive or stifle it. Um, and education is the training of uh, the employees. So again, the, the terms here sound like I'm talking about nation, national issues, but the same issues apply uh, to an organization. So let me talk a little bit about those two uh, key aspects, culture and leadership. So what makes an innovative culture? And um, I took some time to really think back to every environment that I've been involved in, either the companies that I built, uh, the companies that I sit on the board of, um, both Disney and FedEx, which are incredibly innovative companies in very, very different industries, the people that I've met that are, um, strike you as incredibly innovative, and realize that all of these environments and all of these people actually share what I call five core values for innovation. And it became clear to me that you, if you keep these five uh, uh, aspects in mind when you hire people, when you're building cultures, when you're looking for a company to work for, where do you want to work, uh, when you are uh, doing research, um, when you're educating kids or parenting or mentoring kids, that if you keep these five things in mind, um, it really does help you understand what things encourage innovation and what things stifle them. So what are they? The first one is questioning. And um, curiosity is clearly linked to innovation. All innovation starts with identifying a need and framing a question. And I need to, uh, must say that the framing of the question is a very, very important step and something that is not obvious because if you frame a question judgmentally, you will get a very different answer than if you frame a question in an open fashion. If you ask something, somebody when something's going to be done, you're going to get a very different answer than if you ask somebody what are you working on and what are the obstacles that you're facing. Um, if you ask a customer what their problems are, that's going to give you a different set of feedback than if you ask them, do you need the following feature? So how you frame a question is very important in terms of understanding uh, or driving innovation. But questioning isn't just about curiosity. And there's a second part of this core value that is really important that we forget too often, and that is self-assessment. That's the ability to question yourself and, the quest and, and actually have some uh, self-doubt. And a term I came up with is to call innovators in some ways have to be critically optimistic because you need the optimism to plow through and overcome the hurdles that people kind of throw up or that uh, uh, the tough problems that come in your way. But you need that little bit of self-doubt to constantly self-assess and say, Am I doing the right thing? Could I be doing this better? Is there another direction that I could go? Are there some results here that actually show me something more interesting than what the problem I started out to solve? And there are many great innovations that have come from serendipity, where a researcher was working on one thing, and some results from their experiment uh, showed them something completely different. Um, or, or showed them the answer to a question that was completely different. So questioning is, is uh, the first of that. The second is risk. And what does risk mean? We're all talking about risk these days. Risk means the vulnerability, the willingness to fail. The willingness to try something, knowing that you might fail. And uh, what goes along with this is learning from failure. Because nobody wants to fail. 
But if you're going to fail, um, you need to be willing to, you need to understand how to take lessons from that failure. And any innovative organization needs to make it okay to fail. Because if it's not okay to fail, nobody will ever try anything. And so this, this notion of intelligent risk and attitude towards failure is one of the biggest, I would say, make or break characteristics of an organization or a culture. The reason why Silicon Valley has thrived is because you can fail here and you'll get funded again. Um, now, I must say that some of that has changed and it is less true today than it was 20 years ago. But the fact of the matter is that um, the, the, the attitude of the Valley is that you get credit for trying. And VCs, if you have an experience, you failed, and you've learned from that experience, you're not, uh, you're not viewed as personally a failure. Even the bankruptcy laws in this country are something that support failing and being able to, to start again. The third one is openness. You need to have an open mind to imagine, to share. Collaboration is a very important part of innovation. Uh, open to surprises. The fourth is patience. In an innovator, that's tenacity. In a leader, it's patience. It's let it grow. Let it take some time. Because when leaders of companies or venture capitalists or people on Wall Street are too anxious for short-term returns, that's what causes you not to have the more disruptive um, innovation. And last, you need trust. Because if you don't have trust, then you can't, you don't, you can't be vulnerable to failure. Now, it's interesting. These, uh, I'm going to use the word balance again here. You don't get to pick one of these and say, I do that, I'm innovative. So it's not enough just to be curious. Um, it's, if you just take risk, that's gambling. Um, but you need a balance between them. So let me give you two examples. If you have trust without questioning, that's blind faith. And blind faith is not innovative. That is telling someone to do, and they blindly uh, go according to it. But perhaps a more interesting example and a more timely example, if you have risk without questioning and without openness, which can then lead to a lack of trust, you end up with the financial crisis that we're in today. Because people took risk, they did not ask enough questions. Nobody asked enough questions. There was not, not enough self-assessment going on, even once we were into the problem. There was no transparency. We did not have the openness. And then we got into a situation where nobody knew who to trust. And that's where the, the funds then lock up. So this is a perfect example of how if you don't have these factors in balance, what can happen? Or if you, these factors start to erode. And again, when I talked earlier about what led me to uh, write the book, I believe in the lead up, up, up to the bubble a time when a lot of people will say that was very innovative in the late 90s. That wasn't about innovation. It was about greed. So we lost our patience in the late 90 with the crash of the bubble, corporate scandals, tragedy 9-11. <clears throat> we became very risk averse. We closed in. The leadership of the nation caused us to stop self-assessing. We stopped questioning. We lost our trust. And there goes innovation in the country. So these core values are really, really critical to uh, sustaining an innovative environment. Now, there are lots of ways um, that we kill these things every day. And actually, um, people are naturally innovative. Little kids 
drive you crazy asking questions. And so what we do is usually we beat the innovativeness out of people through our education system and then in our companies. So pr process and structure and very tight metrics tend to block innovation. Um, many forces work against the different core values, whether it is, uh, people say competition is great in terms of bringing out innovation. If resources are too scarce, whether it's grant money or uh, prize money or bonuses, it does the opposite. If, if, because if you have too much competition, people play it safe and then they're not willing to, to take risks. Um, incentive systems, ROI hurdles. One of the things that's happened in Silicon Valley in terms of the venture uh, model is venture capitalists used to invest in very, very early stage, unproven uh, technology. Today, more and more what you hear is I'd like to hear, um, I'd like to talk to some customers that can validate your idea. And things like return on investment hurdles are being put up. And what that does is actually make it harder and harder for high-risk, high-return startups to get funded. Because if you can validate a market, I would argue that it's too late for a startup. The big players are already going to play in that environment. So there's lots of things that we do to kill at innovation. And what I usually tell organizations or people is when they're thinking about, again, joining a company, building a company, running a lab, think about how many ways that you naturally are stifling innovation and go about removing those barriers. And that is the best way to get innovation throwing, uh, flowing again. So I was talk, talked about culture. Let me just talk a minute about leadership. Um, <clears throat> unlike uh, the way you run a large company, in large companies, you really have to focus on efficiency, productivity, zero defects. There's been a lot of uh, training and techniques such as Six Sigma and other techniques over the last several decades in how management can make their companies more and more efficient, more and more productive. Unfortunately, what happens is you make the company so efficient, you take all of the slop out of the system and there's no room for the surprises. There's no room for the innovation to happen. And <clears throat> people talk about uh, Six Sigma and training black belts and brown belts to go around the company and measure everything and determine how to take these defects out. Well, when I was reading about Six Sigma, it occurred to me that, in fact, nurturing innovation is not like karate. It's more like gardening. And what you really need to do to lead innovation and whether it's in a venture startup or in an organization in a big company, is you need a green thumb. And the, what I mean by that is you need to be able to lead uh, in, a more, in an environment that is more ambiguous. You need to be able to make decisions with hard, without hard data. Um, often you have to just you go with your gut. Does this seem like a good thing to invest in? And again, whether you're a venture capitalist or an entrepreneur starting a new company, there's a lot of just going with your gut because there isn't hard data yet if it's really a new idea. So innovation at scale in large companies um, can work for process innovation and incremental innovation. And there's nothing wrong with that. You need incremental innovation. But if you want breakthrough or more significant innovation, you actually need small gardens or greenhouses to create that. And in a large company, that can be organizations within the company, or it can be partnering with venture 
startups or small entrepreneurial um, uh, companies. The reason why, and this is the place where entrepreneurialism and innovation become linked, the reason why entrepreneurial companies are so innovative is because they can be run like a greenhouse or a small garden, and you don't have to worry about the scale in the beginning. The challenge for venture companies is what happens when you start to scale, and how do you make sure that you can continue to be innovative as you scale, and as the companies get bigger, in the end, what you end up having to do is pull out, again, small teams to be able to focus on that future innovation. So I'm going to finish up by talking about um, the national issues for uh, a couple of minutes, and then I'll take questions. I mentioned earlier that, um, that I believe that the national ecosystem has been in decline for several decades, and that we have come to a place where we have essentially an innovation deficit. Now, you could say, why does this matter? We're in Silicon Valley. We're all entrepreneurs. We're going to go out and start companies. Um, it does matter. It does matter because it, it, no, no business operates in a vacuum. And venture uh, startups are influenced by big companies because that has to do with where liquidity comes from. They're influenced by the capital markets. They're influenced by policies, whether it's something like Sarbanes-Oxley or patent laws. So we do not operate in a vacuum, and the national ecosystem really does matter to the success of, uh, of Silicon Valley and the entrepreneurial ecosystem in it. So if you think about where uh, innovation has been done historically in the research community, in startups, in large corporations, um, innovation in research started to close in in the 70s as funding for research started to decline and the way it was allocated became very uh, almost bimodal, meaning things like physical sciences and environmental sciences, areas that we need so badly today, were absolutely starved in the 70s and 80s, while a lot of the funding went to IT and life sciences. Good for IT and life sciences, we needed it, but we needed it across the board. And when investing in research and basic science, you really want it to be very broad-based. The other thing that happened is research funding became more risk-averse. The high-risk, high-return type of research that was that created the internet um, is not as available today as it was once. Innovation in startups thrived through the 80s, but in the 90s as we accelerated into the bubble, again, chasing money replaced actual innovation. So I believe we became less innovative in the bubble. And then in the crash, um, we all know what happened in the valley. And then innovation in large corporations started in the 70s as everybody focused on efficiency started to back out of investing in advanced technology and re research to the degree. So the result of all of this, and if you, uh, these are leaves, and they go from green to brown, that means that they're dying. So I assumed that everybody, everybody got that because you're all Stanford students. But um, so we were going yellow to begin with when we hit 2000, 2001, and the combination of the bursting of the bubble, corporate scandals, 9-11, and actually how the country responded to those problems. It wasn't just that we had the problems, but it was the response to them that turned all of these uh, brown. And what do I mean by that? Well, after 9-11, the, there was a lot, and the corporate scandals, there were a lot of knee-jerk reactions in terms of regulation. One of them, for example, is Sarbanes-Oxley. 
but also we didn't take advantage of the threats to really rally the nation. And if you go back to the 50s and 60s and look at the reaction of national leaders to uh, the Cold War, to Sputnik, the reaction to those threats were to rally the nation and invest in broad-based science, work with industry to really encourage a lot of innovation. After 9-11, the reaction was to uh, acknowledge the threat, but to tell everybody to keep shopping. And that is a very different type of, of leadership style. And um, I'll, get, I'll come back to this again in a minute. So I have question marks in 2010. There's no way we can be green by 2010. But my hope is that we're going to be back yellow. So what does it take to be going back in the right direction? First, we have to acknowledge that there are a lot of things that are changed. We can't go back to the 50s and 60s and recreate Bell Lab and Xerox Park and um, there's just a lot of things that are different today. Now, some of those changes we need to embrace. We need to embrace globalization. It's not us versus them. Innovation is not a zero-sum game. Uh, people ask me what the title of my book means. What does the gap mean? It's not the gap between us and other countries. It's the gap between where we are and where we were and where we are and where we should be, where our potential is as, uh, as a country. So we need to accept and embrace globalization. Uh, it's, if the whole world is innovative, that is what we want. What we don't want is for the whole world to be innovative and for us to be in decline. That's not a good situation. There's an accelerated pace of everything, of business, of the way the world works. But that should not be used as an excuse not to stop, think, and analyze. You have to stop, think, and analyze more quickly. But uh, the accelerated pace is not an excuse to just have knee-jerk reactions to things and come up with short-term solutions. Obviously, the internet and the web has changed our lives. The problems we face are much more complex and interdisciplinary in nature, and we need to embrace that in our education systems, in the way we build teams and companies, in the way we do uh, research. And then there are some changes that we need to figure out how to solve, how to combat. Uh, one of them is we have a lab gap. Um, you can do a lot of really interesting research in the university environment, in academia, but there is a gap between taking those technologies and proving whether or not they scale. And this gap has been hidden somewhat because in the software industry it doesn't matter. If you're Google, you can go from academia directly to a venture finance company. But if you're in life sciences or if you're working on alternative energies or semiconductor technologies, there's a gap in the middle. The things that Bell Labs or Xerox PARC or IBM Research used to play a role in terms of proving out that technology, we actually don't have a solution for today. And we have to figure out how we're going to do that if we're going to solve <clears throat> some of the problems in these other fields. Um, the vanishing middle class in this country, um, uh, let me just say that the, the, the uh, the common wisdom has been you're either pro-business or you're populist, and that those are two very different things and at odds with each other. The fact of the matter is if you think long-term and not short-term, the, the needs of business and the needs of a, a, a healthy middle class are actually the same. Because without a thriving middle class in this country, we won't have talent and we won't have consumers for our products. And this has been hidden for the last... Uh, five years, 10 years, because so many large businesses have grown internationally, because the middle classes have, have um, 
been growing in China and India and Russia and all uh, everything that has created globalization. But the fact of the matter is our middle class has been going the other way. And we need a healthy middle class in this country to make sure that we have the consumers and the talent that we need. The short-sightedness that I talked about, I believe that we have to combat and not easy to do. And then the other thing that has happened over the last uh, certainly eight years, is an anti-science focus in the, in the country. An increasing decline for respect for science and respect for scientific evidence in terms of making decisions. So let me just talk, finish by talking about leadership and culture in this more nat uh, national perspective. What do we need from our next generation leaders? And when I say next generation leaders, I'm talking about everything from the top of the country to you in this room, because we're talking about leaders uh, across the board. The first thing we need to recognize is that there are two types of ways that you can lead. And um, people uh, often talk about innovation or, or a crisis driving innovation, or necessity being the mother of innovation. And what is too often happens is people take a threat whether it's competition to business or a world threat like terrorism, and take that threat and use it to create fear or intimidation in people or employees. The problem is if you just make people afraid and those people are helpless to do anything about that fear, what actually happens is that the executive function or the leadership function turns off in their brains. And you don't get innovation unless you have that leadership function working. So what is the answer? The answer is you take that threat, you t whether it is, again, competition, the economic crisis that we're facing, energy, independence, terrorism. We, we have a, a very long list of them that we have uh, to deal with today. And great leaders turn them into challenges and then use those challenges to inspire people to get involved and to make a difference. And that actually turns on the leadership function. And that's what really creates innovation. So again, in a company, you don't go to people and say, oh my god, the sky is falling. We have an economic crisis. We're going to cut half the people. Done. No discussion. But you can go to your company and say, we have to recognize the times have changed. It's tough. We all have to figure out what is the right way to make sure that we can weather the storm, invest where we need to for the future, and cut where we need to. But if you get people involved in that process, it's a very different outcome. And it'll be a much more innovative outcome than just scaring them into thinking that if you, know, you don't lay off 20% of the company tomorrow, there won't be a company to be had. The same thing is true innovation in innovation as a society. We need leaders that will inspire and uh, engage the citizens of the country as opposed to those that lead from fear. Um, another thing about just when leading through hard economic times is it's really important to not just have a knee-jerk reaction that you stop investing in things in the future. So companies should not just be investing in things that help revenue today. They, now's the time to continue to invest, maybe not as heavily, but continue to invest in the future so that you can come out of the economic crisis even more strongly. Um, it's more important than ever for leaders to be collaborative and inclusive in terms of their leadership style. 
And um, the challenges that we face today, um, I mentioned this already, we have lots of them. So if we're looking for ways to inspire, uh, whether it's employees or the nation, there are lots of opportunities for doing that. And I believe, as hard as they are, as long as they are going to take to tackle, that uh, if we reignite the culture of innovation in this country, in businesses, in academia, and uh, uh, in the valley, that we can do what it takes to, um, to solve them. And then finally, um, I, as I mentioned, it's about leadership and it's about culture. So the culture part is really about education and parenting and peer uh, pressure and the media. And unfortunately, our education system and our culture these days are not really working in innovation's uh, favor because there is a tendency towards very short-term uh, instant gratification. When we look towards the 21st century, what do you need? You need to be collaborative. You need to be adaptive. You need to be interdisciplinary. Um, and the fact of the matter is we need lots of great scientists and engineers. But as important is we need everybody that graduates from our high schools and our colleges to have scientific and technological literacy. Because today you can't make decisions, you can't make good decisions about your own life or how to vote without a level of scientific and uh, technological understanding. Um, I'm going to stop there because I think I've gone longer than I was planning to and we'll take some questions. But let me just finish by saying um, certainly, and I say this to most uh, audiences, that Everybody has a role to play because in the end, what innovation, about is, what innovation is about is individual leadership and team leadership and using that to create change. Um, there's no doubt that in this room, it's even uh, more clear because everybody who's sitting here is sitting here because you have an entrepreneurial spirit. And when you take innovation and you couple that with the entrepreneurial spirit is when real, real magic happens. So on that note, I will take questions. You mentioned already what uh, big companies can learn from startups uh, with uh, a garden instead of karate. Uh, uh, what can startups learn from big corporations? So I think it's interesting. I, I, I kind of skipped through, I went through that slide a little bit quickly, but um, I drew an analogy. The big company is like a factory farm where you're trying to mass produce and consistently and at scale and be able to uh, produce high quality products for your customers. And that's often very hard for small companies. So what small companies can learn from large companies is about operational excellence and what it takes to really get to that level of, of, of capability. I look at a company like FedEx that I'm on, on the board of, and again, I've spent my uh, career mostly as an entrepreneur, except when I was at, at Cisco, and I'm just in awe by the systems that they have in place to be able to produce the type of service that they produce predictably and reliably time after time after time. And that's something that you not only can't do in a venture startup, but you don't want to do. Because if you take those processes and put it into a company too soon and too early, you won't get the broad-based innovation that you want from the beginning of the company. So you really want uh, to pick the time that you start to scale and how you scale. I, I believe that companies, often companies make a mistake by trying to scale too early. 
Because if you scale early, then, and actually there's a, there's a new saying, a, a mantra in the, in the Valley that I've heard about internet startups, which is uh, scale fast, fail fast. And that works with consumer internet companies, but in general, it isn't a good uh, uh, mantra. What you really want to do is fail early. And if you scale fast, you can't afford to fail because once you've gotten very big, it's very hard to then deal with failure. Failure. If you're an internet company, you can because you just change. It's so easy to make a change. But if you're developing a new drug or a new computer architecture or alternative energy, you need to fail early. And you need to fail often and early until you come up with something that is the right answer. And then you, you scale. So I think that uh, one should not underestimate the importance of large companies and their knowledge of scaling predictably. Folks, we have really tough acoustics in the room. So when you ask your question, please scream it. And then uh, Judy will also give you a, a paraphrased version for those that didn't hear it the first time of the questions. Um, so I'm going to question one of the core values that you brought up. Um, so it's patience. And do you mean persistence? Because I, I hear from other um, speakers that impatience is actually very entrepreneurial. So the question was about patience. And um, I actually, when I was interviewing people for my book, I got a lot of pushback on patience. And um, the fact of the matter is it depends on where you are in the process. And if what you're doing is research, for instance, or advanced technology, where you're trying to uh, come up with disruptive answers for future growth, then patience is really important. Because if you don't give things time to germinate or give t people time to think and you constrain the problem too tightly, you'll end up with incremental innovation. You will not end up with something disruptive. So for broad-based innovation, patience is really important. But patience is relative also. That doesn't mean you, don't, uh, you, you go forever. On the other hand, once you come up with a new idea, and if you, so let's say you're taking an idea into a venture startup to go to market, you do need a certain amount of impatience in turn because time to market matters. And so you want to make sure to um, have the right amount of drive. And um, I call it active patience. You, you want enough patience. You want the right level of patience at each stage of discovery or innovation. And the reason I put it there is because we as a society, as leaders, venture capitalists, have become too impatient. And um, I've seen too many companies that have been shut down because they didn't get to a solution quick enough that if they would have been let to germinate a little bit longer, a little bit more leeway, might have come up with something phenomenal. So I think that uh, we've become too impatient. But I will say that that, that that word patience is sometimes tenacity, but also it's active patience. It's not just sitting back and doing nothing. Do you feel that the spirit of innovation itself is what is, do you feel the spirit of innovation is alive and well, and it's just the ecosystem up for innovation that needs attention, or do you feel that even the spirit of innovation itself needs attention? So the question is um, whether the spirit of innovation itself needs attention, or is it the ecosystem? 
So uh, first let me say that the ecosystem is the combination of the organisms and the environment. So uh, it, it, it's hard to separate it out, but I actually think, um, and I, I, and so two things. This isn't across the board. I can point to uh, companies that are incredibly innovative. Um, and I have low, you know, whether it's Pixar to FedEx to Procter & Gamble in terms of large companies, uh, Intuitive Surgical is a company in the Valley that you look at their environment and they continue to innovate even though um, they're a medium-sized company today, two uh, new startups. So there, it's not that there is no innovation, but I actually believe that our culture today and the, the generation of kids that are growing up today and being educated um, are, is working against innovation. So I think we not only need to make sure that we have the right policies and the right funding, but that we actually need to think about the cultural dynamics that led to the economic crisis that we're in today. And there, it, it wasn't just whether government was involved or not. It wasn't just, um, uh, it, it, there, there was a cultural dynamic there. There's a cultural dynamic between the people who bought the mortgages, who couldn't afford them, the people who were selling people mortgages without giving them the information, the people who were trading the derivatives and coming up with clever ways to you know, not be transparent, the greed, all of that is, um, has become part of our culture. And if there is one benefit we will get out of what just happened, and there's not many benefits, will be if we use this as a way to learn from failure. But uh, whether we will or not is, is a question. And it, I, you know, I think that uh, the business community, Washington, there, it, there's a tendency to, have a, to look for short-term solutions to it. We need to come up with answers that uh, take people who are hurting and help them, but we really need to analyze and understand how we got here and learn some lessons from it. You mentioned risk, but people are naturally risk averse. So, how do we decide whether or not to take a risk, whether it's worse? The question was, people are naturally risk averse, and how do you decide whether to take it or, uh, or not? So I will say that um, there's a spectrum of people in terms of risk aversity. Some people are, are too easy to take risk and aren't intelligent enough in their risk taking. Other people have tendencies to be very risk averse. I would say that if you want to be an entrepreneur and you're on this side of the spectrum, uh, don't be an entrepreneur. Um, wait, let someone else start the company and go work for that company. Entrepreneurs need to be somewhere in, in the middle of the spectrum. I don't think if you're on the you know, non-intelligent risk side, again, which is, is more gambling, you should be an entrepreneur either because the chances are that you're not going to take intelligent risks. And so um, I think that there, it's a question of... Uh, once you have people that are in the middle who have the uh, willingness or the, uh, the capacity to take risk, then it's a question of how safe they feel. So you can take somebody who has the capacity for risk and put them in an environment where they are afraid or where they don't have any safety net, and they will stop taking risks. And so part of what's happened in, in uh, the country is that we've lost some of that trust. 
we've lost some of the underpinnings of that safety net, which makes people more risk-averse and more short-term focused. Um, but you can't take somebody who is inherently really risk-averse. That person typically will not become an entrepreneur. Um, the world is right now like fi facing a financial crisis. Do you expect any sort of innovation from that financial crisis, emerging out of that financial crisis? If so, what kind of innovation would you see? Um, unfortunately, I think that the most natural tendency will be to uh, become more risk-averse and more short-term focused out of this uh, financial crisis. But there's an opportunity to actually uh, um, as I said, learn. And um, the couple of things that we can, can learn is, number one, uh, we know how, I think in the Valley, we all know how interconnected the world is. That wasn't as apparent necessarily all over the place. And so I think this economic crisis has uh, just reiterated how connected um, our economies are. And if we can learn from that, and learn to then work together with other countries better. We've been, uh, our attitude as a country has been, we're America, whatever we do, you should do. Or we, you know, we're the bully and you should follow. What we need to learn from this is there is a whole set of areas that we need to be collaborating with other countries. And whether it's, uh, and financial policy may become the first area at a necessity. But there's science policy. There's uh, collaborating on uh, climate change. There's all sorts of other areas where if we could change our attitude but in the way we work with other countries, then that would be pro-innovation instead of in. The other thing is that if people take the lesson from this, I say it's a big if, that this is what happens when you're too short-term focused and too focused on just tomorrow and too greedy, then maybe there would be a reaction that people would take a step back and say, maybe we've gone too far, and we need to rethink uh, some of the norms and some of the things that we took for granted as being okay. And if that lesson were learned, that would be terrific for innovation. It's a big if. Judy, we want to leave time for you to go outside for the book signing. Uh, folks, we have uh, copies of Judy's books, and better yet, we have Judy to sign them for you. Uh, there'll be a table just set up outside, but before we do that, I'd like to thank you for coming to Stanford, and thanks for your comments today.